Uh, and with that, make sure you have your Bibles in hand. Let me see those Bibles. It always encourages me to see the Word of God in people's hand. Never take the preacher's word for it. Always double check what the preacher is saying with the Word of God. Amen? Also, if you didn't get the message notes in the bulletin, just raise your hand right now if you need either a Bible or a bulletin, because we do like you to have both the message notes where you can fill in some blanks, jot down some notes, and also a Bible uh, to have with you as well as we dive into God's Word. Today we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12 in just a few moments. Well, as most of you know, my wife Christine and I have four amazing daughters. Three of them are with us today in the early service. Uh, My other daughter, my oldest, of course, is finishing up her college years over in Phoenix. And so having these four amazing daughters with a separation of only eight years between the oldest and youngest, uh, we had some periods of time that were very challenging as parents. If you were to rewind uh, 11 years back, uh, back at that point, we had a two-year-old. We had a five-year-old, we had a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. And so at that point, 11 years ago, kids between the ages of two and 10, as you might imagine, it was very important for us to have a bedtime routine. If we didn't have a bedtime routine, things would just not go well. Amen. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? And so there were certain things we had to check off every night before bed, put on jammies, check, brush teeth, check, Do devotion together as a family. Check. Say prayers. Check. Tuck the kids in bed. Check. Doesn't sound too complicated, right? But there were a few other kind of unspoken guidelines that if we didn't follow uh, those guidelines, there might be World War III in our home. Certain little things like when we tuck our kids into bed, there cannot be even one single bug on the wall, the ceiling, or on the floor. If there is, oh no, World War III. As we tucked our kids in, we had to make sure we didn't close the bedroom door behind us because if they couldn't see the hallway from their bed, oh no, World War III. And there was one rule in particular that was especially important. Under no circumstances could we turn off all the lights and have it pitch dark in their bedroom at bedtime, right? If we were going to turn off lights, we better make sure they were fast asleep before we did that. There's something about having the light on that brings comfort and peace to a child, right? And there's something about the light of the world, Jesus Christ, that brings comfort and peace to a child of God. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. When we left off two weeks ago, Jesus Christ was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and he knew his days were numbered. He only had six months left to live. The following spring, he would return to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. He would be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He would be arrested. He would be beaten to within an inch of his life and nailed to a cross to die. So in John 7 and 8, as Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, opposition is mounting. Many in the crowd hang on his every word and believe that he's the Christ and the Son of God. But others in the crowd say, you're a deceiver. Still others say, you're demon-possessed. And while all that's going on, the Jewish leaders who can't stand Jesus are sending temple guards to arrest him. That's where we pick up this morning in verse 12 of John chapter 8. If you're there in your Bible, say amen. Amen. Here we are beginning in verse 12 
of John chapter 8. God's word reads this way. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. May God bless us as we study his word today and apply it to our lives. Amen. Well, you may remember that there are several things about John's gospel that set it apart from the other three gospel accounts in the New Testament. John is distinctive from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in, in several key ways. You may remember that we talked about this a few months ago. John doesn't say anything about Jesus' birth, doesn't record anything about childhood years. He doesn't record anything about Jesus' baptism or his temptation for 40 days in the wilderness. And one other thing that John doesn't include, he doesn't include a single parable of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Not a single parable. But what he does include that the other three gospel writers don't are these beautiful and powerful teachings that surround his I am statements. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, Moses was really hesitant. He didn't want the job. He said, pick anybody else, God. I don't want to go back to Egypt. And God said, no, I'm choosing you. And Moses asked the question, well, what do I tell the people when they ask me who sent me? And remember what God said? Tell them I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. I am is a form of the holiest name of God, Yahweh. So in essence, he's saying, tell them Yahweh sent you. So Jesus, seven different times in the Gospel of John, has these key teachings wrapped around these I am statements. They're there on the screen for you. Beginning in chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He taught that a day after he had fed the 5,000 with five little biscuits and two sardines. Then here in chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Over in chapter 10, he gives two I am statements. I am the gate. Some translations say the door. I am the good shepherd. Over in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, in chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. So he has these powerful teachings around these I am statements. And the second I am statement is here in today's passage. I am the light of the world. Say those words with me. I am the light of the world. Jesus had a way of taking these tangible things that were around him as he was teaching, and he would use them as metaphors and object lessons. A few quick examples back there in chapter 4, he's talking to the woman at the well. And remember, there she is at noontime by herself in the heat of the day, dipping that bucket down into that deep well and having to lug up that heavy bucket all by herself. And Jesus turns to her and says, if you would have known you could do this, you could ask me and I would give you living water. 
And so use this water that was in the center of their conversation and used it as an object lesson, a metaphor for a spiritual truth. Over in John chapter 6, just a day after he had fed the 5,000, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then here in John 8, at the close of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus tells his listeners, I am the light of the world. So we have to ask, was there anything about light that was significant in this Feast of Tabernacles that would lead Jesus to use that as an object lesson at this time and at this place? And the answer, of course, is absolutely, right? Jesus didn't just say, you know what? I've been meaning to use this illustration about being the light of the world. Today's as good of a day as any. I'm going to try it today. No, Jesus didn't work that way. He was the master teacher, amen? amen? The most genius teacher in the history of the world. No one could teach like Jesus could teach. So you better believe he used the light of the world illustration on this day in this place for a reason. And here's why he did that, I believe. The Feast of Tabernacles, remember, lasted for eight days. And every night of the Feast of Tabernacles, there in the temple, they would have these huge candelabras and they would light them every evening. And they would light these candelabras. We're going to put a picture on the screen here for you. When they lit these things, they were so tall, as you can see there, a young man had to climb a long ladder just to get to the top of that candelabra to light it each evening. And so these huge candelabras, I don't know exactly how tall they were, maybe 30 feet. That's probably a pretty close guess. These really tall candelabras. And some people said that on a dark night when these candelabras were lit, they were so bright, they would light up every courtyard in Jerusalem. That's not bad for some regular fire candelabras. And, you know, they didn't have LED spotlights back then. That's pretty impressive. And so these bright lights were lit every evening. And the very first night of the Feast of Tabernacles, when they were lit, they would have this grand ceremony. It was called the illumination of the temple. And so the religious leaders would install these bleachers around the court where these candelabras were. And that way they could accommodate hundreds of spectators because they would have this grand ceremony. They would light those uh, candelabras for the very first time, that first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. All the people would cheer, and the religious leaders would be out in the middle of the courtyard singing psalms of praise and dancing literally all night long. They would dance until the cock crowed the next morning. And then they, in exhaustion, would go home and get some sleep. And so it was a grand ceremony, this illumination of the temple. Now, guess which courtyard this took place in, where they placed the candelabras and had this illumination take place. Any guesses which courtyard it was in the temple? It was the court of the women. Now, that's an important point, the court of the women, because we look down in verse 20. We haven't gotten to that verse quite yet, but we'll take a sneak peek here. It said, Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Guess where the Jewish people deposited their offerings in the temple? There were eight golden receptacles, actually brass, eight brass receptacles shaped like a trumpet. Not eight, there were actually 13 of them. 13 of these receptacles, and they were located in the court of the women. So Jesus is giving this teaching in the court of the women, just a few feet away from these huge candelabras that had been lit every evening that week for the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's no coincidence that Jesus stands next to these candelabras that every night had been lighting up all of Jerusalem, 
And he says, I am the light of the world. You think these candelabras are impressive. I am the light of the world. Now, a side point here. There were 13 offering receptacles. So we need to hear it impact, be more biblical and not just have one offering box. We should probably have 13, right? Yeah. So we're going to start spreading 13 offering boxes around the room. Everywhere you go, you're going to find an offering box. You're going to excuse yourself to go to the restroom and guess what's going to be next to the toilet? Yet another offering box. No, I don't think God wants us to do that. But that's what they did in those days. 13 offering boxes, but uh, that's beside the point. So what is Jesus saying here when he makes this I am statement? He says, I am the light of the world. I believe he's basically saying this. These candelabras can light up Jerusalem for one night, but I'm the one sent by God to light up the whole world forever. Can I get an amen to that? These candelabras provide physical light for your eyes, but I provide spiritual light for your souls that leads to eternal life. We serve an awesome Savior, don't we? Like most of you, I'm not Jewish. So I am very glad... I'm not Jewish, I'm a Gentile. I am very glad that Jesus didn't come and say, I am the light of only the Jews. Aren't you glad? He said, I am the light of the world. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't let you keep stumbling in spiritual darkness just because you weren't Jewish? He flipped the switch and lit up your life, didn't he? He illuminated the sin in your heart that you needed to confess. He took off the blinders from your soul so you could see clearly that he is the Christ and the son of the living God. And he provided a lamp for your feet and a light for your path so you'd know which way to go. Aren't you grateful that Jesus is the light of the world? Look at verse 13. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. What are the Jewish leaders getting at? Well, honestly, they're saying much the same thing that Jesus had said back in chapter 5. If you go back to John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said back there in Jerusalem at the time as well, he said, I, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. So why did Jesus back in chapter 5 say testifying about himself is not valid? And the Pharisees say it here in chapter 8 that his testimony about himself isn't valid. What are they getting at? Well, the Old Testament laws of testimony were very clear. In the Old Testament, it was very clear that when testimony was given, it was important to have at least two witnesses to confirm a fact. Normally, if you were a party in the trial and your particular party in the trial had the burden of proof, you could not yourself be one of those two witnesses. If you had the burden of proof, you had to have two witnesses beside yourself to confirm what you were saying and to prove the case on your behalf. So the Jewish leaders here in verse 13 are saying, wait a minute, Jesus, you're making a pretty bold claim here. You just got through saying, I am the light of the world. Now, we don't know what you mean by that, but it seems like a pretty big claim. So if you're claiming to be the light of the world, give us some proof. Give us some witnesses to validate that what you're saying about yourself is true. Because if you don't have some witnesses, we're not buying it. We're not buying it. So Jesus' response in verse 14, if you look at it again, his response in verse 14, I think, is pure genius. Jesus basically says, hey, guys, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm going to be honest with you. I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. 
So my testimony about myself is actually more valid than your testimony about me, because honestly, you don't even know where I'm from, let alone where I'm going. So if I'm testifying about myself, at least I know where I've been and where I'm going. You guys don't have a clue. (laughs) He's right, isn't he? They didn't have a clue. In verse 16, Jesus makes it clear that he's, he isn't standing alone as his own witness. He stands with the Father. And then in verse 18, he says, I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And when you think about it, you couldn't produce two better witnesses to take the stand than God the Father and the Son of God. If you're ever in a court case and you need to produce two witnesses... Man, those would be a couple amazing witnesses to show up. You have your first witness and then the second witness. Uh, uh, Your Honor, I'd like to call to the stand the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega. I'd like to call God the Father to the stand. It was just two weeks ago I I got the, the pleasure of having jury duty. I've had jury duty before. Most of you probably have, right? I've had jury duty before, but it took me actually about half a century before they actually picked me as a juror. <laughs> I've never been picked as a juror before. And so this time I was chosen, kind of. <laughs> they chose me as the second alternate, which means I had to sit through the entire trial. But as soon as it was time for the trial to end and the jury to go to the jury room and deliberate, they kicked me out and said, make sure you're within a one-hour driving distance in case we need to pull you in as an alternate. So I said, okay. So interesting case, and there was actually only one witness. And that one witness was a professional psychologist, had a Ph.D. in forensic psychology, and she served as a witness for the defense claiming that the defendant was not competent to stand trial for whatever crime she committed they never told us. And so this was a competency trial. The defense had the burden of proof. So it kind of flipped things around. And it was interesting because this psychologist takes the stand, and so I got to hear all of her testimony from start to finish. Very intelligent woman. She shared her uh, schooling, her education. She writes for journals. She does seminars. She does training. She works in the prison system. This was an expert witness, and she understands psychosis better than just about anyone. She gave very eloquent testimony, very intelligent testimony. And when I got the call from the bailiff a few hours later that the jury had deliberated and come down with their final verdict, guess what verdict they came down with? They found that that defendant was competent to stand trial. In other words, they disagreed with the professional witness. And I found myself asking the question, her testimony was so good. Why didn't the jury go with the professional's testimony? And I believe, I wasn't in the jury room, so I can't say this for sure, but I'm pretty certain I know why. That jury wanted a second witness. Amen? One person testifies, that wasn't enough. The burden of proof in their minds wasn't reached. They wanted a second witness. How amazing it would have been for the defense if they had said, we do have a second witness, Your Honor. We call God the Father to the stand. Case closed, right? Because if God the Father is testifying, you don't really need any more testimony. And that's encouraging for us as Christians because as Christians, we have plenty of critics. We have plenty of people that think that our ideas and our beliefs are crazy. You know, what are you guys still back in the 18th century? You still believe this stuff about marriage is just between one man and one woman? What are you thinking? You still believe you should wait until your wedding night to have sex with your fiance? How stupid is that? You living in the 18th century? What's going on with you? Really? You actually believe 
that homosexuals can actually reform and, and choose to do things God's way? You actually believe that? Yes, we do. And so the world might think we're crazy, but ultimately if 6 billion people on the planet testify that you are nuts, but God the Father takes a stand and says, he is mine, she is mine, that's all the testimony you need, amen? That's all the testimony you need. Ultimately, that's encouraging, me, encouraging for us as Christians because one day we will stand before God on Judgment Day and give an account for our lives. And one thing that's encouraged me for years is the fact that none of my critics will be able to show up and chime in on Judgment Day. Oh, God, let me tell you about Dane. Did you know what he did on January 5th of 1997? Do you know what he said to me on February 4th of 2018? Do you know what he said? Do you know what he did? There'll be no room for critics to chime in and give their two cents on Judgment Day. It's just you and the Lord. Amen? Amen. Hence, the Apostle Paul writes in, in Romans 8:31, if God is for us, who can be against us? So is Jesus' testimony about himself valid? Of course it's valid. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But if that wasn't good enough for his critics, he says, well, God the Father testifies on my behalf as well. God the Father says so clearly, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, let's pick up. Let's pick up in verse 19, still here in Romans chapter 8. They asked him, well, Jesus, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says where I go, you cannot come? But he continued. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him, even as he spoke many, put their faith in him. Well, in these 12 verses, the Pharisees ask three questions. They ask questions in verse 19, verse 22. And then the last question down in verse 25. Let's look at each of these three questions. I think these questions are interesting. And what I find even more interesting is the fact that Jesus doesn't answer a single one of their three questions directly. It's like they ask a dumb question and he responds by answering the much better question that they should have asked in the first place. Isn't that awesome about Jesus? He doesn't feel compelled to answer dumb questions. Sometimes he does us the favor of answering the good question we should have asked in the first place. Well, look at dumb question number one, verse 19. They say, Jesus, where is your father? Uh, Jesus has just told the Pharisees that the father testifies on his behalf. 
So the Pharisees want to know who his father is. How many times does Jesus have to make this clear that his father is the father in heaven? Jesus responds to their question starting in verse 19, but notice he doesn't answer their question. In verse 19, Jesus says, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Verse 21, he says, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. The question they should have asked isn't, where is your father? The question they should have asked was, when I die, will I make it to heaven? Or how can I be certain that when my life comes to an end, I'll be given the gift of eternal life? Those are the good questions they should have asked, but no, they're asking, where is your father? Well, notice Jesus didn't answer their question, but because of what he says in responding to the question they should have asked, they kind of ignore the first question and ask their second follow-up question in verse 22. And they're talking amongst themselves in verse 22, and they ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? If you didn't think the first question was dumb enough, it got dumber, didn't it? It's like dumb and dumber, these first two questions. The second one, will he kill himself? Is it just me or do these Pharisees have no clue? They just don't get it. And this is exactly what we should expect because spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. Amen? Spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. They didn't have the Holy Spirit's help to help understand what Jesus was teaching. They didn't understand Jesus' teachings about salvation and the kingdom of God and heaven. None of those teachings made sense to them because they were leaning on their own understanding and not on the understanding of God's Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians three fifteen through 17. He says, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What does he mean by that? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Well, for starters, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom to understand who Jesus Christ really is. Amen? There's freedom to understand that he can wash our sins away in a way, in a way no one else or nothing else can. It gives us the ability to understand that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. He's the Son of God. He's the only Messiah, and He's your only way to make it to heaven. The Holy Spirit unlocks our minds to understand these things. Many of you can remember back in the days before you accepted Christ, none of this stuff we're talking about made any sense to you. God's Word just went right over your head. Can you remember that? You didn't understand the Word of God because spiritual truths, once again, are spiritually discerned. But ever since the day you placed Jesus in the driver's seat of your life, the Holy Spirit has been taking off the blinders and helping you to see the truth. Amen? Helping you to see the truth of God's Word, Old Testament and New Testament. Without even going to seminary, you're able to understand even some of the deeper truths of Scripture because the Holy Spirit is inside of you unlocking the truth so that you can understand it. Without the Holy Spirit's help, we are clueless like the Pharisees were clueless. Without the Holy Spirit, we too would have no clue what Jesus is talking about. So, does Jesus answer the Pharisees' stupid question about whether or not he's suicidal? No, he doesn't. It's a dumb question. He does give them some insight into why they can't go where he's going. Notice verses 23 and 24. 
He says, you're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. About 15 years ago, Christians around the country started putting a bumper sticker on the back of their cars. Well over a million Christians were doing this. N-O-T-W. Remember what that stands for? Not of this world. They were sticking this on the back of their cars, N-O-T-W, and at first non-Christians, and even Christians were looking at that and saying, what on earth does that mean? And then when non-Christians figured out what it meant, not of this world, many non-Christians agreed. I see the way that Christian's driving. <laughs> He's driving like a madman. Yeah, you drive like you're from another planet. But, but Christians were, you know, broadcasting this, I'm not of this world. Where did they get that? They got that from Jesus' words here in John 8. And also, in a sense, they pulled it from Hebrews 11:13. such a great verse. The writer of Hebrews says, all these people, talking about the Old Testament heroes of the faith, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And a few verses down in verse 16, he goes on to say, They were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Amen? I bet some of you uh, remember that old southern gospel hymn, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, oh, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't. You forget the words, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. No one remembers the old Southern gospel hymns, huh? All two of you. That's fantastic. Maybe I shouldn't sing that one in the next service. We'll see. Oh, what a blessing. What a blessing to know that this world is not our home. Jesus was not a natural born citizen of planet Earth. Amen. And if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, neither are you. Jesus is a citizen of heaven and Christians, so are you. Jesus Christ has adopted you into his family, so your home address isn't in Victorville or Atlanto or Hesperia or Apple Valley. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, your home address is there in heaven. Amen? You're just here temporarily. It's a temporary address down here on earth. Your thoughts should not be of this world. Your behavior should not be of this world. Your priorities should not be of this world. Your goals and your hopes and your dreams should not be of this world. Now, I'll warn you, if you live like this, if you live like you're from heaven and not from earth, you'll get a whole lot of criticism. And there'll be a whole lot of people that don't get you. They don't get your beliefs. They don't get your priorities. They don't get your goals. They don't get how you spend your money. But I want to encourage you today by letting you know that you've got a church family here and we get it with you. Because we're aliens and strangers on this earth as well. You're not the only alien in this room. There's plenty of them here. Amen. Amen. It makes no sense to most people that you believe and follow what the Bible teaches about sex and marriage. 
It makes no sense to most people that you believe and follow what the Bible says about divorce and about the sanctity of human life and loving your enemies and trusting in Jesus is the only way to heaven. It makes no sense to most people that you go to church instead of going to state line. That you tithe to God instead of tithing to a larger car payment for a newer and nicer car. That you will not compromise your integrity, even if it costs you your job. This does not make sense to most people. But that's okay. No matter how many people around you don't get you, please believe me. We get you. We get you. We're family. We're strangers in this world just like you are. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God, Join the company of believers who are not of this world. Question number three is in verse 25. Now, of the three questions, this one actually makes a little sense. It's a good question. Certainly better than the last two. They ask the question in verse 25, Jesus, who are you? Who are you? Well, Jesus, when they ask this question of him, I think there's something within them that truly does want to know the truth. I think mainly they just wanted to catch Jesus and saying something stupid so they'd have grounds to arrest him. But I'm hoping that there was at least a small sliver of uh, a hope in them that possibly he was the Messiah. If you believe that Jesus was just a good teacher or you believe he's a prophet or just one heck of a nice guy, then sadly, you're going to remain in the driver's seat of your own life. You'll have Jesus shoved in the glove compartment. And you will suffer the same fate that these Pharisees ultimately suffered when their lives came to an end. If there was any sliver of hope that Jesus was the Christ, they didn't pursue it. Because it's very clear in the chapters that follow, those religious leaders did not turn to Jesus. The Pharisees asked Jesus the question, who are you? And once again, Jesus doesn't directly answer the question. But what he does say could change your life. Look again at verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. We know that Jesus is referring to the cross. So Jesus is saying, Jewish leaders, when you lift me up on the cross, then you will know that I am the one that I claim to be. Friends, if the cross of Jesus Christ does not convince you that Jesus loves you, nothing will. If the cross of Jesus Christ doesn't convince you that God would pay the highest price to make a way for you to be forgiven and spend eternity with him in heaven so you do not have to spend eternity in hell. If the cross doesn't convince you of that, then nothing will. If the cross of Jesus does not convince you that he is the Christ and the son of the living God and the only path to eternal life in heaven, nothing will. Verse 30, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. I hope and pray that every one of us does the same. No matter what you're going through, no matter how many people might think you're crazy, put your faith in Jesus Christ and start living like you're not of this world. Three quick lessons in closing that we can pull from this passage today. Lesson number one, no matter how many lights are shining around you, Let Jesus light your way. After all, he's the light of the world. You know, don't you, that there are plenty of lights in this world. There's the lights of 
education, popular culture, popularity, fame, fortune. There's all sorts of lights around you. It's not hard to find someone that will give you their two cents about what they think you should do in life what they think your purpose is, what they think your goal should be, what career you should be in. There's no shortage of people who are ready to give you advice if you ask. There's plenty of light shining around you, but this passage shares with us that Jesus Christ is the light we should be following. After all, he's the light of the world. Sometimes people around us can give us a light to light our next step or two, but Jesus Christ can light your way all the way to eternal life. His path for you is perfect. His will for you is perfect. His plan for your life is flawless. If you're going to follow a light, follow the best light of all, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Lesson number two. Remember that on judgment day, God alone will judge you. So live your life to please him and him alone. Live in such a way that you will hear him speak these six glorious words. Well done, good and faithful servant. I live For these six words. I live for those words. And once again, I am so thankful that my critics won't get to show up on Judgment Day. It'll just be me and Jesus. And I long to hear him speak those words as he looks into my eyes. Well done, good and faithful servant. No matter what anyone else thought of me, I want to hear him speak those six words. I hope that you'll live for those same six words as well. Everything you do, everything you say, every priority that you set, every time you spend your money, think about those six words. Am I doing what I'm doing for the glory of God? Will he say of me, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Finally, lesson number three. Your life and time are limited. And you don't know what that limit is. Therefore, there is every reason for making the decision to trust in Jesus Christ now before it's too late. Sadly, it appears that most of the Jewish leaders missed their opportunity. Don't make the same mistake that they did. William Barclay makes this point so well. These words are so well said. This passage brings us face to face with the glory of our opportunity And with the limitation of time in which to seize it. I want these words to sink in. Could you read that with me? I think I put it on your handout if you can't see the screen. This passage brings us face to face with the glory of our opportunity and with the limitation of time in which to seize it. So many people say, I will accept Jesus Christ someday. Someday. And for many like these Pharisees, Someday will never come. Jesus Christ has not promised you five months from now, five years from now. He hasn't even promised you tomorrow. And so the problem the Pharisees had, they said, no, we're not going to accept you today. We need more evidence. We're not ready. We need more evidence. We're not ready. We need more evidence. We're not ready. And then ultimately, each and every one of those Pharisees died And in that moment, it was too late. They had missed their chance. And what a tragedy it would be if anyone in this room or anyone watching the broadcast today, what a tragedy it would be if you say to yourself today, I'll accept Jesus Christ tomorrow, and tomorrow never comes. Jesus Christ has given you a wonderful opportunity today 
to put him in the driver's seat of your life. And if you miss your opportunity today, all eyes up here, please. If you miss your opportunity today, you may never have this opportunity again. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So make sure that you're right with God today. The greatest gift in the universe has been held in front of you today. To be forgiven, to begin a new life, to put the old life behind you, and have the Holy Spirit living inside of you from this day forward to guide you every day of your life until God calls you home to heaven. Don't squander this opportunity. Make sure he's in charge of your life today. Lord Jesus, we come to you. And sometimes it gets a little uncomfortable when we realize we're aliens. Sometimes people look at us like we're three-eyed green people walking around. Sometimes people give us funny looks, Lord, when they see the way that we live, the priorities that we have that are so much different than the world's priorities, our beliefs that seem so outdated, old-fashioned, archaic, People think we just walk around believing the word of God blindly. They just don't understand because they're wearing the blinders. Oh, God, I pray that our family members and friends, I pray that you would take their blinders off and help them to see the light of the glory of Christ. Help them to see the light of the world. Oh, Lord, help them to understand the truth that Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. Lord Jesus, help our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students to embrace the light of the world. And I pray if there's anyone here today who has never accepted you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior and Lord, I pray that today they would bow their heads right now and say, Lord Jesus, please have mercy on me. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are the Christ and the Son of the living God. Please, Lord, come into my life. I trust in you. And I will obey your commands for the rest of my life. I will place you in the driver's seat of my life and leave you there for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.